Hello, everybody. Welcome to the B-Side. Only this time we're doing something a little bit different. Um, if you're listening right now, you're most likely on the B-Side feed uh, for the film stage. And we love having you here. We're Today, we're going to try uh, a little different thing. We're going to talk about great directors and their final film, right? So uh, we have, it's, it's me, it's Connor as usual, and we have our good buddy, Nate Washburn here, who's, you've heard his voice if you've been listening. He was on our Humphrey Bogart episode. He was on our Catherine Hepburn episode, a connoisseur of old movies, uh, a very talented actor in New York, and the guy who runs the classic Hollywood movie you should know on YouTube and on Facebook. Just a great little four or five minute um kind of reviews rundowns of of a bunch of classic movies recently a lot of christmas holiday movies which was fun um and so yeah basically we're going to start with alfred hitchcock one of the greatest and we're going to talk about his final movie family plot and um just kind of talk about that movie in the context of his whole career and i think nate i'll pass it over to you to kind of tell us where the idea came from what your thoughts were behind it and then we can just jump right into Hitch and, and this crazy movie. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, thrilled to be back with you guys. Uh, love the podcast. I love you both. Happy holidays to everyone out there. Um, this just sort of came up with, you know, the fact that the entertainment business and like, you know, my acting stuff has sort of shut down except for podcasts and occasional Zoom readings and, you know, some scripts that I'm writing. So I've been delving into certain directors like filmographies and watching movies that I hadn't seen before. And I just, I got caught up with, you know, there are certain classic directors who I think of almost like their careers ending around like 1960 to 1965 as, yeah, I mean, that's really when the studio system had its last gasp and like they continued making films that I had never seen. And so I was just, I was really curious about someone like an Alfred Hitchcock and his, movies in the 70s and particularly his last film family plot but other ones you know like Billy Wilder or Howard Hawks just just these these directors who you know we have these ideas of their classic films but what about the ones that weren't classics you know that's just sort of where the onus came from and then I emailed Dan and Connor about it and uh yeah they were generous enough to say hey that sounds like fun so here we are yeah, talking about Alfred Hitchcock yeah, and I think, you know, I was mentioning right before we, we pressed record um, on our Slack channel as part of the Film Stage show, which is like our Patreon uh, people, I get access to the Slack channel and um, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of different kind of subjects on that channel. It's like a very active channel. And I mentioned this idea just kind of as like, a, hey, what do you guys think about this? And there was actually like a decent amount of exciting, excitement off of the idea and like, Brian Rowan, who's uh, one of the hosts of um, uh, of the Film State Show, he was talking about, for example, um, we started talking about other directors' last movies, of course, and like Michael Curtiz came up, who I know we've talked about, um, of course, before, and like the Comancheros, which was his last movie, which I'm looking at it now, 1961 is a John Wayne picture, and like Wayne did uncredited directing on it because Curtiz was not very well, right? And it's like Curtiz is like 
Casablanca, Angels with Dirty Face. We talked about it. Like, yeah, just bangers, right? The Seahawk, Adventures of Robin Hood. And then White like Christmas the, for those White, who like White how, Christmas, yeah. right? Sure, I, yeah. I forgot about that. Of course, yeah, you're right. And like his last movie is this like John Wayne movie that did okay, also starring Lee Marvin that no one ever talks about. Like you couldn't <laughs> pay anyone to remember the common chairs. And it's like that's that that a guarantee is a future episode, right? Like just yeah. like and so to your point, bringing it into Hitchcock. And, you know, Connor is like a Hitchcock savant. He loves Hitchcock, like, more, far more than I do. Like, um, we were just talking right before we pressed record about how, like, his last five movies, basically, after The Birds, you know, Marnie the Birds, that time period, it's like Torn Curtain, Topaz, uh, Frenzy, and Family Plot are all, so four, I guess, are all basically, like, even to this day, kind of people are like, "Oh yeah, those those last ones." <laughs> They're like also Rands, kind of. Yeah, you don't and need to yeah. watch them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what's funny is what I was saying to Connor before we jumped on. For my money, Topaz and Frenzy are two of my favorites. Two of my favorites, like of all of his movies. Topaz, I think, is like a perfect movie. I love, love, love. And we'll talk about it. That's the movie he like runs away from America because he's so pissed off after <laughs> Torn Curtain. He's like, I'm going to just work with Europeans. I can't even yeah. deal with these movie stars anymore. And he kind of takes that into frenzy, goes back to London, which was a big deal. That's like his only R-rated movie, really, right? And then, um, and then, um, and then, of course, Family Plot, which is like a kind of his forgotten. I think a lot of people would tell you, even cinephiles would like tell you that Frenzy was the last one. Family Plot's kind of forgotten. And yeah, so I guess we'll set up the movie. Connor, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. You can kind of tell us about Family Plot, I suppose. Sure. And just like, and then we can just talk about, you know, Hitchcock and our lives and then, you know, bring it back into you know, this eclectic foursome, this, this, these actors and family plot, this like new Hollywood at its best. But yeah. anyway, Connor, over to you. So yeah, so family plot, uh, came out in 1976. Um, he was not intending it to be his last film uh, who is ever right. But, but, uh, it unfortunately was, he we will get a little later into, there was a film that he was planning that actually sounds kind of super cool that never happened. But, uh, he reteams with Ernest Lehman, who wrote the screenplay for North by Northwest, and um, he reteams with a couple of other of of his other regulars as well. Edith Head, as usual, pops up to do the costumes, things like that. It basically is a sort of comedy mystery uh, thriller about two duos. Basically, you have Barbara Harris and Bruce Dern who are uh, Blanche and George, and they're basically low-level con artists. Barbara Harris is essentially a uh, a fake psychic. She does these low-level swindles um, on kind of older women to get their money, and the movie opens, and we are kind of brought right into her getting the scoop on tracking down the heir to this fortune that basically belongs to what at the time was sort of you know deemed an illegitimate son, uh, who has since disappeared. Right. And 
in the process of doing that, she ropes in George, who kind of is her driver slash boyfriend slash out of work actor slash private detective. He's kind of a he's kind of a lot of things uh, played by Bruce Dern. And the two of them decide to track down the heir to this Rainbird family fortune. Concurrently with that, we have Karen Black and William Devane as two serial kidnappers who, when we meet them, they're just finishing up one job and they are kind of in the midst of taking this diamond that they get as the ransom and trying to kind of fence it and they stow it away in the meantime in their in their chandelier. That's kind of the basic setup. It's basically these two different kind of uh, crime thrillers, crime comedy, crime thrillers that are happening sort of simultaneously um, that we'll go we'll get into how they connect. But it's one of those movies that it feels a little bit closer to something like uh, if you're if you know Alfred Hitchcock's filmography, it feels something a little closer to like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Like it feels or, or like the trouble with Harry. Right. 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 Don't you think? Yeah, that's even that's even better. Right. It, it definitely like the three of these movies could be kind of a trilogy because I think part of the things that that people didn't like about the movie when it came out was just that it was a little lighter and a little breezier with the subject matter as opposed to a straight up sort of traditional Hitch- Hitchcockian thriller because at this point, I mean, way, well, well before this point even, by the time, you know, by the time Vertigo or Psycho come out, he is a franchise unto himself, right? Uh, in terms of his motifs, his styles, the things you expect, the things you want to see, um, they're all kind of there and people know what they want from it type of thing. And I think at this point, it it really did maybe feel to certain people like, oh, he just he's he's either slipping or or whatnot. And I think that kind of started to come on the tail of the, those these group of four movies that you mentioned, Dan, because uh, he does Marnie, which is a success. And we should know what I mean, like Frenzy in its own way was a success as well. So it's not like he was just it's not like it was this sort of constant string of failures necessarily. But certainly but you, you're right. Like he basically after the birds marnie included in that which like marnie's a weird movie right it's like psychosexual right got tippy hedron right at the end there Mm -hmm. in terms of her relationship with hitch you know well documented and like um you know from then on it's it becomes way more niche and it's it would be like it would literally you know what's you know what actually you know what it's exactly like it would be like if tenet for nolan was Marnie and then and then like and then if like the next five movies like Nolan's like I'm making five more and then I'm done and they're all like one's really dark one's kind of a misbegotten spy movie right like whatever and you just kind of go like oh yeah I guess he's kind of done and I feel like if you if you read the reviews of Family Plot at the time I read Ebert's review I read the Times review they're not bad reviews. They're just kind of like, yeah, you know, good old Hitch. He's getting a little old. Still nice to have him around. Like they're positive, but they're very much yeah. like pat. They're like pats on the back. They sort you know, of they're read, not like. I the only other person I could think of currently because I was also the way he made this movie and the way you know if you if you uh, you know you can find it on YouTube. Uh, there's a nice little featurette that's on the like the Blu-ray of this movie. I think it's been on a couple DVD issues of this movie as well. But um, but I'm sure you could probably find it on YouTube as well. It's an older little featurette 
Um, so the footage is kind of dated or whatever, but to hear Bruce Dern talk about it and to hear William Devane talk about it, he kind of is in like the way we talk. He's kind of in a mode, uh, like the way we talk about Clint Eastwood now, um, where he wasn't necessarily doing the thing where he was making a movie a year or whatever, but like family plot for a couple of them as an acting gig was like a nine to five job. Like, and he right. was very specific about, and, and kind of always was, but particularly in his old age. And as he got to this movie, very much like if it was not going to be on screen, he didn't shoot it. Right. Yeah. And Nolan's a good comparison, Dan, because he, by all accounts, that's sort of the way he shoots his movies. He kind of well, yeah. Nolan says said his least favorite part of making a movie is being on set, right? He just doesn't like the process of like his favorite part is editing, right? Which, which like to to know a Nolan movie is to yeah, be the least surprised very, very at, at, at all yeah. that he's like, oh, and, oh, you like the editing? Okay, and you know what I mean. Like, I mean, then they are. Uh, I, f I feel like I'm going to there are just listeners that are going to be like, ah, when I say this, but they are like very similar filmmakers. Right. Sure. You, can, yeah. you know, I, I won't speak to comparing quality or anything like that, but very similar in the in the sense of Hitchcock had this way of, you know, there's the obviously infamous actors or cattle thing and all that. But he had this way of of knowing exactly how things were gonna look right and and more than than most directors had and some ever will right where he would draw storyboards he would shoot exactly what he needed to shoot and he would cut it together exactly that way and probably what nine times out of ten it worked right like it just so oh, yeah. he had this this thing of maybe more so than than another director particularly directors in the 70s had at the time this very prescriptive vision in his head of exactly how something needed to fit together and i think part of it is that obviously it's a holdover from from his heyday in the 50s and whatever but even more so i think it just all comes from this is a dude who was almost quite literally born with movies, right? Um, and essentially came up through the silent era, through the British studio system, like made the first British talkie, right? And through the American studio system in its heyday to then come to the end of old Hollywood, right? And and some 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 of that probably comes off as a little quaint, but but to look at a movie like this or a movie like Frenzy against the beginnings of New Hollywood to me is like astounding, actually. And I think I think part of that mentality of the way he structured these things together comes from a dude who, you know, who started making movies when they were purely a visual medium. And all you had to go by was, you know, a, a visual pace or structure or something like that. But all that said... I think um, I hadn't watched this movie in about a decade. I had only seen this movie once and I watched it kind of just as a cursory, you know, maybe 10 years ago for the first time as a cursory, like it just, I had never, it was the whole right in my, my knowledge of his movies and whatever. And I liked it fine enough. I think I kind of felt about it the way most people did where I was like, eh, whatever there, there are other better ones and rewatching it for this. I was really glad to, cause I just, I found it delightful. I just was like really enamored with it. 
And it kind of, it did make me feel that, you know, given his place in the pantheon of, of auteurs and directors and things like that, that, that thing of when you get to that caliber of filmmaking, if, if you're that level of filmmaker, I mean, even your lesser movies are still better than most people's best movies, you know? And I, 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 totally. I think this movie kind of reads like that. And Nate, you hadn't seen that, right? This, this is the I'd first never seen it, no. And I, yeah, I'm going to piggyback on um, what Connor was saying because I, as I was watching it, and I also loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I had seen, I've seen Frenzy maybe about 10 years ago. And, and what struck me with that, that was kind of going through like, you know, a 70s director phase is it felt like, hey, I'm going to make almost like a psycho-esque thriller but add blood and nudity and, and stuff that I couldn't right. do 10 years earlier. Like he was trying to stay up to in the vanguard on that. Totally. But then seeing this one, I was struck. It was like he rejected the way that the 70s directors worked of like, hey, we're just going to shoot everything like an easy rider or, you know, um, French Connection, Taxi, like all these movies and showed you can still kind of work in that studio system because I, I watched the same featurette that Connor was talking about yeah. where – I think Bruce Dern said they shot like 110,000 feet of film and used 55,000 feet of it. Yeah, it's like a two, to one. It's a two to one ratio, which, that is like, insane. Insane. which doesn't like, happen. Yeah. Well, yeah, like Cameron Crowe, like if you read about him filming Almost Famous, Steven Spielberg almost fired him because it was like, he was just like, yeah, just keep rolling. We'll figure it out later. And yeah. And Spielberg was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? like, you know, but they're, you know, Almost Famous is great. Some yeah. directors do do that, right? Yeah. The Elaine May stories, of course, the Mikey and Nikki stories. So it's like, it can go either way, but that's insane. Two to one, you never hear about that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think part of that too, and I know that he was just, he put his name on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but I think he was really influenced by TV because totally. he didn't do that much location shooting on this from like what I've read in like the featurette and he did a lot of stuff in the studio because he he knew what he wanted and he could, he could get it and knew that he could use effects and just sort of like make it, cut all the fat and, and make basically a golden age, golden era of Hollywood film during the 1970s director's era, you know? Well, yeah. And, and like, so he wanted to work with Barbara Harris, who's amazing in this movie. Mm -hmm. And partly because she was in an Alfred Hitchcock episode, right? Present like she had been right. around and he'd wanted to work with her. And to your point, Nate and, and Connor, the, the sneaky underrated thing about family plot is it's, it's an old fashioned Hitchcock yarn with new Hollywood actors who are yeah. being allowed more rope than most Hitchcock actors, yes. right? Like he yeah. did allow improvisation a little bit, which is like, did not happen on Hitchcock set. So right. like the, you know, famously, well, not maybe not famously, but like a little famously the wink, Barbara Harris wink in the final shot of the movie, direct to camera. That was just something Barbara Harris did and Hitchcock kept it in the movie. Right. So like that type of stuff, you, would never have been permitted, if you will, you know, 15 years earlier. So, right. and obviously like Bruce Dern for my money is there's no one that's more emblematic of the time sure. than Bruce Dern, right? A guy who's like not, not doesn't have movie star looks, right? Kind of does every different version, right? He's leading sci-fi man in silent running. He's the, he's playing against Jack Nicholson. Who's playing against type. And Bruce Dern is playing the Jack Nicholson type in The King of Marvin Gardens, which is one of my favorite movies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and this is the pocket. This is like 74 to 79 coming home, right? Bruce Dern, yeah. right? Like he's 
he's a movie star, which is like to look back at the 70s when like, you know, Elliot Gould, right? Um, Bruce <laughs> Dern, Gene Hackman are getting Dustin like- Dustin Hoffman's a sex Dustin Hoffman, for God's yeah. sakes. Yeah, it's like, yeah, Dustin Hoffman kind of kind of sexy in all the president's men. You're like, what? But it's like, <laughs> that was true. You know, it's like, and- um, Did and, you hear, uh, I'm sure you heard who he initially wanted in the role of Lumley, right? Right, the, we got it. Well, yeah. well, why don't we talk about it? Yeah, so, so, so yeah, so, so speaking of actors, Connor, you can kind of lead us into this. There's a lot of almost uh, for this family plot. For this yeah, movie. yeah. So there are two, the two that struck me. So, and you, you know, obviously with a lot of these things, Dan and I have talked about this on the B side as well, pretty regularly. Like you hear a lot of like, oh, they considered so-and-so and it's like, what does that really mean? Who knows? Right. Uh, but by, by Bruce Dern's account, his role was initially offered to Al Pacino, right? And the big thing was just that Pacino was Al Pacino at that time, right? With the Godfather and everything. So his fee was too high. And post-Torn Curtain, where Hitchcock was kind of essentially aghast at, at the fees that were paid to both Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, he kind of vowed to himself that he would never basically pay an actor that much ever again and i think you know and you, if you were to read or or watch anything on torn curtain or about torn curtain um it, it, almost everybody involved kind of had a terrible experience on it right uh julie andrews i think less so but paul newman and alfred hitchcock both hated like, each other hated didn't each get other yeah, didn't that. get along it shows in the movie too. If you watch it, you can. Oh, kind of, you can. You can oh. feel it. I like that movie fine. I know. I do not like that movie, I, and I know Connor I, likes it more. Have you seen Torn Curtain, Nate? I have not. Oh, yeah. Torn is like Torn Curtain and Topaz. I have yet to watch. Like this, both this is like movies. Yeah, Topaz Oof. is better. I'll agree with I Dan on Topaz. that. The thing about I'll, quick aside to these four movies, right? These late stage Hitchcock movies. What's funny about them is they're they're deemed lesser, and I would say. Maybe they are, right, if you're comparing them to the 50s run, which is, like, unstoppable, right? But they do, for my money, contain portions of, like, career best, mm -hmm. which is crazy. Like, there is a sequence in Torn Curtain where they're trying to kill somebody and it takes forever. And it's, like, this truly inspired, wonderful sequence. Um you have some shots in Topaz that I there's the famous purple dress shot from Topaz, which I won't spoil with context, but it's oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be it, one of the best shots he ever framed. It's, yeah. it's one of his best shots. It's probably one of the most beautiful shots I've seen ever in a movie. It's amazing. Um, and there are lots of little nuggets of that stuff that are that are pure Hitchcockian, wonderful little moments or scenes or whatever. And this movie's full of them as well. Um but anyway, that said, I think Torn Curtain is that sort of line of demarcation that really kind of fucked him up a little bit where he just was like, you know what, I'm done. And by the time you get to this, he's all, he, they're still trying to get the movie stars, right? So they're still trying to get an Al Pacino, but Al Pacino reportedly wanted too much money. And rather than go to whoever was next on their list, allegedly Jack Nicholson was on that list too, which like... That would have been fascinating to see Jack Nicholson directed by Alfred yeah. Hitchcock, obviously. Uh, but then he jumped down the list to Bruce Dern because he had worked with Bruce Dern, who's in the flashback scene and Marnie and Marnie. Um, and then it, Bruce Dern had popped up quite frequently on uh, both Alfred Hitchcock Pre presents and the Alfred Hitchcock hour. Um, 
What do you think? Do you think Pacino, like, I would love to sit down with him and just say, hey, man, if you knew that Family Plot was going to be Hitchcock's last film, like, would you, would you have, have lowered it? your fee? Right. Yeah. Well, I, but you know what, though? But this is where, and Nate, you can, like, you'll have, actor, actors will say later, and I, I don't know how much of, it's like one of those things of, like, he said, she said things where it's like, sure. Actors, in the, in, in the context of these things that Connor's saying is like, who like it's very possible that like Pacino's agent just kind of was like, oh yeah, this is the fee. No, you can't pay it. Okay, forget about it. And like it barely got to Pacino. Yeah, like no, you'll, right. you'll 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 yeah. like you'll hear about that. Like you know, I'm trying now. Of course, I can't think of a good example, but like, oh oh, oh yeah, the one that is coming to me. This is a, a silly one, but Rob Lowe has his podcast, and he talked about how um, he's finally on some show that. Um, uh what's his name who ryan murphy uh it's there's some show it's on right now they're finally working together and years ago after nip tuck had come and gone ryan murphy was with rob Lowe and told him that he had written the character of christian troy with rob Lowe in mind but the script never even got to rob Lowe because it was just like deemed like not good enough, like for Rob Lowe. And uh, Rob Lowe was like, what? Like I would have, are you kidding me? Like I loved, and obviously what's his name? Dr. Doom from Fantastic Four ended up playing that role. But like, he he was like, so it could have been that is my, yeah. is my point. I, I don't know. I also was speculating is like, you know, if he didn't get along with Paul Newman, like is there, oh, any, yeah. like Al Pacino <laughs> and Hitchcock, that would have oh, been, yeah. It would have been a disaster. Your two, your yeah. two to one ratio of shooting goes out the window for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's look. That's the other thing that makes the that makes Family Plot even more interesting is yeah, you, like yeah, Hitchcock, came, like you said, Connor came up through studio control, right? Like actors are cattle, that whole thing. You know, making people like Tippi Hedren crazy, right? Making people like Vera Ma, like, you know, Janet Lee, all these, you know, the blonde, the Hitchcock blondes, like where they're like, enough of this guy. Like Grace Kelly seemed to be the only one who could kind of, you know, uh, split the atom. And then, of course, she goes and becomes the, you know, queen of Princess of Monaco or whatever, you know, right. quits acting. Right. So it's like he like finds his 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 gal and then she she, you know, literally becomes a princess. But it's like. Yeah, imagining him working with, I mean, even like, I mean, honestly, him working with Devane, Karen Black, right? Like, people who are in these, I mean, Karen Black in Five Easy Pieces, one of the best performances ever, ever, yeah. ever. She, right? She's like, top billing. She's she's the yeah. top star yeah. in this film. Yeah. yeah. And it, which is, a, I, I will admit, a little strange because she is, she does feel like the fourth character kind of yeah um, i guess the most famous maybe at the time though yeah i, don't know. I think that's to go back, i think but, from yeah. what i was reading that was why is because she yeah. she was the most famous of the three of them the devane character if we're talking sort of alternate casting was also at one point uh i don't know if this had so this is an interesting one because hitchcock wanted devane right and then they wound up he wasn't available and then they wound up going with uh, an actor named Roy Thinnes, who did like two weeks worth of work on the movie, an and Eric Stoltz amount of work. Yes, exactly. <laughs> kind of, you know, no, exactly. Nice. Is, oh, back to the Future and reference. In an Eric Stoltz fashion, is still in the movie. Um, oh, that's funny. In like a handful of in, shots, like, reaction, yeah, 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 from and, behind yeah, and uh, things like that, over the shoulder, long yeah. shots, yeah, yeah, and. Um, <laughs> And then Devane was available and they just sort of unceremoniously 
fired Roy Finnis, poor Roy Finnis, and and brought on Devine. And I couldn't track where this was from, so I'm not going to give it too much credence, but I did see it in the IMDb trivia and thought it was interesting in the context of this whole casting swap, is reportedly after an initial screening, Hitch or during an initial screening, Hitchcock was watching Devane on screen and leaned in to Bruce Dern and was like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting because I think Devane's pretty good in the movie. I think it's yeah. like a fun. Yeah, so do I. It's a fun performance. Um, but yeah, and it, he initially uh so he wanted Devane and then I had found somewhere that the studio initially wanted Burt Reynolds which I think I would have liked more because I think to see Burt Reynolds play someone this slimy would have been really nice I don't think he he probably would have found a way to not be as slimy as William Devane is which so maybe that's sort of neither here nor there um, and also Burt Reynolds found a way RIP, you know, to make the the wrong career choices like after after two after look, after two decades of being the biggest movie star in the world, right, mind right. you. But around this time is when he's like, Oh, let me start, you know, making the wrong choices. And like for every starting over or something that's like uh, you know, has a little bit of weight, he starts directing himself and stuff and it starts kind of going downhill. So it would have been interesting if this was kind of a you know, a highlight yeah, I think, in that time. Yeah. I think what's what, and I was thinking about this because you hear a lot of like, even in his older films, right? Hitchcock's older films, the criticism that gets gar that gets thrown at, at the leads are like, oh, he's just, you know, he's just not a Hitchcock leading man, right? People said that about Paul Newman and Torn Curtain, and they're not necessarily wrong. Um, and I, but I was thinking like, I think Burt Reynolds like might've been a Hitchcock leading man. Like, I think he just kind of had, and I said this sort of, I said this off mic to you, Dan, like the one thing he pivot, Hitchcock pivots away from movie stars in these last four movies. Um, but the one thing that I feel like kind of, he had a huge knack for was knowing that he wasn't an actor's director. And that's why he needed movie stars, right? Like he could kind of give a shit about the performance, right? And because he had movie stars, that was just like enough, right? To like push through whatever he had kind of rigidly structured uh, to get out of them. And it mostly obviously worked, right? You know, it turns so many yeah. people, uh, more than one person into a screen icon, right? And I think if I could lob one criticism at this movie, though, I like it very much. And though I think it basically works on all fronts. And I think all four of the, you know, the lead performances are, are very good. I do think if you're weighing it against older Hitchcock movies, that's the thing that's missing is like, it doesn't mm. have, I would say maybe with the exception of Barbara Harris, who you mentioned, Dan is wonderful in this movie. And is, I think gives like a top tier performance. I would say with the exception of her, there's just not like, a level of innate automatic charisma that comes out. I think the performances are great sort of despite that, because I think even Bruce Stern like rings out this like interesting performance and this interesting character. Um, and I think maybe that does kind of, that does go back to what you mentioned, Dan, about him offering people like Bruce, Bruce Stern and Karen Black a little bit more latitude than he might've offered. What's um, so I, I, 
you know, whatever, alternative history, all that stuff, reading about this movie and, you know, doing a little bit of research for this podcast, um, I was struck because in, in online and in uh, a bio of Hitchcock that I have, the uh, Patrick McGilligan, A Life in Darkness and Light, he says that Hitchcock didn't like Karen Black's performance. Like he he was kind of gropey with her, which, you know, Hitchcock has a, a tendency. There's all questions about how he treated his women. But that's why they're the focus is on George and Blanche versus Arthur and Fran. Like hmm. they he ended up cutting more of them. And in this in this bio, Bruce Dern is quoted as saying, like, you know, oh, I'd see or um, William Devane is like kind of getting annoyed a little bit at Karen Black and Hitchcock would make a signal of like, oh, I'm just going to cut her thing so don't worry about it right which is just kind of brutal it is no no, it's it's truly brutal and it but it also it's one of those things it's like when you read about him as a director it that that tracks right like that yeah that's the least surprising thing i've ever heard even in the featurette that that we were that we both watched karen black is quoted as saying like you know she had this really powerful emotional scene towards the end of the film in the kitchen where they're talking about murder yeah and you don't even see the scene like you right. hear her talking because like he's got the camera on Bruce Dern yeah. in the staircase overhearing it. Yeah. And, and, he, and I think um, I think he even wound up, you know, she mentions in that anecdote, she did two takes of this scene where she's supposed to cry. And since they, you know, they were trying to be economical with everything, she didn't have what you would usually have as an actor, which is time to sort of amp up and get ready and get the cry going so that as soon as you know, they say, go, you can do it. She didn't really have that time. And so they, they did two takes of it and she did it once, wasn't happy with it. They did it again. And she, she was good by her estimation was good in the second take. And had overheard that Hitchcock just mentioned to print the first one. And so she sort of pleaded with him to be like, Hey, can you print the second one? I think I was better. And he was like, yeah, sure. Right. And, he, and who knows if they if they even did that, right? Like, you know, he might have just been placating her, basically. Uh, but she had seen, you know, when she saw the movie, she was like, oh, I just realized he was like never going to use it. Like, it just wasn't in his head and it didn't actually matter. Yeah. Which, you know, it's and for the just your reference listener, this featurette that that Nate and I keep talking about is called Plotting Family Plot. If you own uh, any kind of Hitchcock collection that contains this movie, I'm sure it's on there. Um, and if you do not, um, it's, I'm sure you can find it, but it's called plotting family plot is the, is the featurette. And yeah. I'm sure it's on YouTube it's, or something. Yeah. It's got, curious. it's got some good, it's got some good nuggets. Um, I do want to talk about just scenes in the movie a little bit. Um, there, I, you know, to go to Barbara Harris really quickly, she's so good and so funny in this movie. And the scene that struck me the most, I mean, you get the cold open where it just feels weird. She's, she's with, uh, the, uh, she's with, I believe, is it Julie Rainbird? The, yeah. Catherine Nesbitt is the actor. Yeah. Yeah. And Julie yeah. Rainbird is the, she's the elderly sort of, uh, wealthy, wealthy woman who wants to find this illegitimate heir to the Rainbird fortune. And the first like the cold open of the movie is, Barbara Harris sort of doing her shtick, calling upon this fictional spirit named Henry uh, to uh, to try and sort of get info through him uh, from the afterlife from Julie Rainbird's deceased sister on where this heir might be. And so Barbara Harris is putting on these two voices and all this stuff. And it's wonderful. And it's it's 
done in a way where you get you know two minutes into the scene before you realize she's full of shit and it's an it, i think it's just a wonderful introduction and a wonderfully paced thing because you're like this feels like a weird way to open a movie like what's going on here and then the minute she sort of peeks through her hands uh and you realize that she's that she's kind of full of it i think is a wonderful little thing and then uh a little later while sort of after she's introduced this idea of getting this money from julie rainbird for finding the heir to the fortune uh after she's introduced that to bruce dern he decides to do some investigating and he has to go get the keys to her car because he doesn't have his own car and she's in the midst of swindling some other poor <laughs> older woman. And he brings her into the kitchen while she's like still trying to keep the shtick up and calling into the other room, but also talking to him. And it's this delightful little back and forth scene. And I believe Barbara Harris was nominated for a Golden Globe for this movie, um, which I think is kind of the most this ever really sort of got. But um, but it's it's just such a fun, light little performance and um and we even talked about her dan on uh on uh our meryl streep episode yeah because she's joe tynan's wife, wife and gives a great and she a, and she's like the best part of the seduction of joe tynan yeah, yeah and it's and it's so she just i i was sort of realizing like as i was looking at her filmography and just the times that we've talked about her like oh she's like is she like sneakily one of my favorite actors because like from a sheer consistency standpoint she's just seemingly always wonderful um but yeah, yeah i mean she wasn't she wasn't in many movies she was in some theater some tv she's in nashville obviously right so it's like she's in great stuff good stuff but is one of those act actresses who kind of ultimately has a pretty small cv you know compared to mm -hmm. like you know other people so i think you know she kind of gets forgotten unfortunately yeah and i i will that first scene when she when the movie cuts in and she's doing the two voices my initial reaction was like what the hell is happening <laughs> and i thought it was so brilliant i'm i'm sure it's probably in the ernest ernest layman's script um just because he's so detailed and so meticulous with the peeking through the fingers yeah that that just shows she's a fraud and and i i i I turned to my wife as we're watching it and I was just like, that's brilliant. They don't need to do anything to be like, you know, have her digging through stuff or talking to somebody else about like, well, how am I going to get info on yeah. this lady? Just having her peek through the it's, fingers. You're like, she's a fraud. It was, yeah. it was so perfectly done in the way that she sort of hoodwinks Julia Raymond. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. It, it's very, I mean, again, like, like a lot of his movies, it's very economical. You're mm -hmm. sort of only, directed towards or given exactly what you need just to keep things moving um and and yeah it's such a it's such a wonderful way to open the movie and then she of course then gets picked up by uh by george and we're sort of given a glimpse into their romantic life where she's seemingly undersexed as it were <laughs> and um and it kind of it's funny you mentioned about frenzy before Nate how like that movie feels like oh I'm going to show blood and nudity and I'm going to get graphic with it because I haven't been able to for you know my entire career or whatever and in this movie it feels like it feels like you could compare this to something like say to catch a thief where mm -hmm. all of the sexual underpinnings all of that boiling in there though not subtle it may be uh, when, you know, cause when you watch that movie and you, you know, if you 
if you know how to watch those movies, you can see it all. They're these the fireworks and yeah, to catch no, a that, thief. <laughs> which is which is one of my favorite scenes. Uh, which is one of my favorite scenes in oh, maybe any movie ever. Um, but it's it is now if that is what you would consider subtext to whatever degree, uh, it is all now very clearly text, right? As much as it can be, kind of more so than than his earlier films, which is sort of an interesting thing you know they they have these sort of continuing arguments about their sex life uh that sort of are interspersed throughout them trying to kind of uncover uh this missing air and um and it's great they have wonderful chemistry and I, and i think it's where that maybe that little bit of improvisation that that you know uh he gave people like bruce dern a little bit of leeway for it pays off because i think their their patter is is wonderful yeah i mean it's just one of those things like we're saying you know when you think about final films for filmmakers this feels light right it feels um but it feels comfortable and i think like we're talking about on a rewatch or like a watch later you know down the road it's it's kind of pleasantries reveal themselves reveal themselves more than maybe they did to many people at the time. You know, I think ultimately it was a modest hit. You know, I think it did fine um, at the box office. Certainly did better than Frenzy and uh, Topaz. I mean, Topaz did barely tracked comparatively, yeah. just because you know it was you know essentially a European film. You know, it's essentially a foreign film in a lot of respects. Um, so, but yeah, in, 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 in the sense of his legend, it's like barely talked about. So I just, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like Devane, Devane. Yeah. I mean, I like, it's funny to hear that Hitchcock maybe didn't like those performances and obviously they are in far less of it than, um, than the other, the other two. Um, I really enjoy the performances. It, it, it feels like you're watching, I mean, and you are obviously you're like it's like watching Hitchcock villains as leads mm -hmm. in a way that they hadn't been in most other movies. Like in North by Northwest, you get the cutaway yeah. to James Mason, so you get that, but it's not as prevalent, right? And you'll get obviously Psycho being the the, the huge outlier, of course, because he essentially becomes the lead. Um, so he did it in some respects. But it's like, in there too, in like uh, both versions of Man Who Knew Too Much and stuff. Like, mm -hmm. it he, he was definitely prone to like making characters out of his villains in terms of like. I guess playing having them. I guess my point is having them be the villains, focusing on them to some degree, and having them make jokes. Right, like, right, right. That that kind of makes it. You know, like Devane's mustache alone, and then and then. Um, <laughs> Even the final scene where he realizes, and we can, you know, we'll spoil it a little bit here. Barbara Harris basically finds the the house where they're hiding their kidnapped people that they're ransoming for diamonds and whatnot. And she just tells him, like, oh yeah, we wanted to find you because you you stand to inherit a lot of money. And Devane's like, oh. Like it just kind of smiles <laughs> at the ridiculousness of this whole movie, thinking there were these like cunning you know people who had like discovered his secret identity and everything and like another uh, actually another performance i wanted to shout out ed louder is in this movie yes. who's gr who's great a great character actor who you know from you know, one of the one of the one of the greatest bald men who's ever lived ed louder is in the longest yard 
Okay. Oh. And when the studio was like, hey, maybe for this. What about Bert? Yeah, yeah what about Bert? He watched the long. He was like, okay, like, let me see if he might be right. He watched the longest yard and was like, oh, who's that guy? <laughs> and and one put Ed Lauder in the movie, which That's is so great. funny. Ed Lauder, basically in the context of what's going on, Ed Lauder plays a, uh, a friend of the William Devane character who has essentially, uh, who Arthur Abramson, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. As uh, William Devane's character and Ed Lauder plays a man named Joe Maloney, who is essentially, you know, he's helped uh, Arthur Abramson in various different ways uh, over the years. It's, and so I'm just sorry to correct of, you. It's a Adamson. Arthur oh, sorry. Arthur Adamson. Adamson. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And he's helped Arthur Adamson in a couple different ways just over the course of their lives. Uh, in, in, you know, with details, I won't spoil too much, but, um, but they have this scene where these details kind of come to light and like any, like any Hitchcock movie, I mean, you can read about it, but like famously Hitchcock was never a fan of whodunits, right? Like he, he was just never interested in that. So the mysteries inherent in this movie, inherent in the missing air, things like that, basically at like the 45 minute mark are all revealed right and so that's when these two the two halves of this story kind of come together and that's where sort of the rest of the sort of hijinks of the movie play out um but yeah to your point it's a really great little supporting performance uh in the handful of scenes that he uh that he pops up in um they wind up having to go meet uh the joe maloney character uh at one point to get info on this missing heir. And it leads to one of the movie's signature set pieces, which is sort of, it's uh, not so much a car chase as it is sort of this like runaway car sequence uh, as their brakes have been tampered with. It's a, a wonderful scene in which Barbara Harris just really does a whole lot with it. It's not really so much, sus it it's suspenseful, but in a, in a way that, you know, maybe this a scene like this wouldn't be in in another Hitchcock movie. It's something akin to the the car scene in North by Northwest where they get uh, they get Cary Grant drunk and they put him behind the wheel of a car. And it's technically suspenseful because it's dangerous, but it's it's not played that way at all. And this scene is very familiar or similar because uh, because Bruce Dern very quickly realizes what's going on. But Barbara Harris, who's used to Bruce Dern being kind of a bad cabbie, is just assuming he's just bad at driving. And she's like, what's your hurry? And he's like, no, the brakes don't work. And she like kind of doesn't believe him. But she's also kind of getting hysterical at the same time. And it's it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful little scene. And there's that little little nugget right before they get in the car where they're waiting for Maloney, who, of course, stands them up so he can mess with their car. Yeah. And Brewster, if you watch, he throws down like four beers in, yeah. in like the the in like a five minute scene. It's it's kind of amazing to see how quickly <laughs> he's just drinking these beers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's again, it's got the light touch that the whole the whole rest of the movie has while still not like it never it's never entirely making fun of itself to the point where it's self parody or anything like that. It's just, it just feels like Hitchcock being like, let's just, let's take our foot off the brakes a little bit. Let's, you know, 
Yeah. yeah and, and it feels like I'd kind of, I mean, you would imagine again, he's, he wasn't planning for this to be his last film, even though it, to me sort of when other people have probably said this better than I, but does to me wonderfully put a button on his whole career. Cause I think it has a little bit of all of the things that he did really, really well as a filmmaker. And, um, but it's it, it it probably more accurately reads as just something that's following frenzy, which is arguably his darkest film, right? Um, to then just to then be like, let me just let me let let's like let me do something a little lighter, and it's interesting to see where things might have gone. There's a um there's a screenplay floating out there, um for a a project that never happened called the Short Night, uh, which was going to be his follow-up to this movie. I believe Ernest Lehman even did work on that screenplay as well. Um, and that was adapted from a story. It was a story that his wife, Alma Reville, suggested he adapt um, as she did most of the things that that he wound up you know, directing. Um, but uh, basically just a, a spy thriller. You can read about it. It's A lot's been written about it. Um, I was unaware of it actually until kind of reading up on uh, for this movie, but that's sort of an interesting little one because just the mechanics of the plot, it was supposed to, again, to your point, Dan, about him just wanting nothing to do with shooting in Hollywood. Um, it was supposed to shoot on location in Finland and uh, had a handful of different actors floating around, namely Catherine Deneuve, Liv Ullman, and uh, Sean Connery and uh, Walter Matthau, which to me, I think to watch Walter Matthau in a Hitchcock movie would have been absolutely wonderful. I mean, Liv Ullman. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, yeah. I would love that. Which is also that, I mean, Catherine Deneuve, like in a, in a, you know, in a string of Hitchcock blondes, you know, seems like uh, she would have been, she would have been an excellent yeah. fit. But um, yeah, never- yeah. Give me, give me, give me Psycho with. Catherine Deneuve and Liv Ullman as the uh, Vera Miles and Janet Leigh. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, Yeah, no, and it's it's definitely, it seems a little like it would have been a little bit more in the vein of something like a torn curtain or a topaz. Uh, If you were to read, if you read the synopsis, it seems a little bit more straightforward spy movie type thing. But um, but that said, I think this was a, you know, against maybe what some might tell you, it's a it's a fine one to go out on, I think. Um, you know, watching whole- yeah, watching this, I I didn't, I also didn't know about this script for the short night and that Hitchcock was planning to do another film. So I went in thinking like this was the one that he was going to retire on, and so many of these moments, like you said, struck me from other films. Like right in the beginning, they show that electric toilet, you yeah. know. Because Hitchcock became so famous with the like, oh, my God, he showed a toilet in Psycho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, oh, I'm seeing all these references. And then the the car chase from North by Northwest, similar with the drinking and Cary Grant. And then right after that, the way that Maloney kind of chases them on the street, I was like, there's the crop duster. I'm like whacking my wife's arm being like, look at this. (laughs) This is another one. Clearly, this is like his his like summing up his career and adding all these different things. Um, cause even like the zooming in at the, at the, at the diamond in the, um, and the chandelier, uh, chandelier yeah. felt almost reminiscent of that zooming down to the key in notorious. In I, a weird yes. way to I'm make. glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. There's also, I mean, there are tons of things like that. Like there's the whole sequence in the graveyard where we see the titular family plot. Um, 
And that whole location was allegedly one of Hitchcock's favorite locations. They used an actual graveyard. They had to obviously swap out all the tombstones, but um, they paid the cemetery to just not do any landscaping work on it for like months and months and months so it could get overgrown and they could get the look that he wanted. But there is this wonderful... um, there is this wonderful overhead shot and it's, I mean, it's, you know, the shot kind of shots he's famous for, uh, in so many of his movies, um, of Bruce Dern in the, uh, in the graveyard talking to Maloney's mother, I believe. No, his wife. Yeah. Mona his wife. From his, his wife. Boss. Boss. Yeah, the wife. Sorry, right, the wife. Right, right. Catherine Hellman from yeah. Who's the Boss. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. and it's a, it's a, you know, just if you, You'd be hard pressed, actually, if you were watching anything about Alfred Hitchcock and this movie comes across the conversation like they'll show this shot because it's iconic uh, in terms of this specific movie. But um, but it, it it's a really good point, Nate. Like it feels like even if he wasn't planning for this to be his last movie, it seems like a deliberate attempt on his part to investigate himself. Mm-hmm. Right. And um and I don't know, I think, you know, and what results are, are, are things that in their own right have since become iconic. Uh, the whole, the whole Karen Black look in this movie is what De Palma straight up lifts for dress to kill. Right. Um, yep. And, yeah. uh, among other things, but it's, it's probably the most iconic thing to come out of this movie. The weirdly. Karen Black image. Yeah. yeah, sure. Sure. At, I, in the beginning when she's like doing her blonde glasses, the black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is there um, no. are there other films with like because my I, I thought about this with the, the diamond being hidden in plain sight, like also in a fish called Wanda where they put the diamonds in the fish mm-hmm. tank with the yeah. rocks, mm-hmm. like is, out of sight, out of sight also are, later. Yeah, but I was like, tank. is this the one that that started that that homage? It's a good like, question. That, that, I don't know. It's a good like, question. I, I, I couldn't I, trace I, it. I'm not know? sure. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not sure. If it started, there's, a, but I, there's of course the USA procedural in plain sight. Which we, all, <laughs> we all watched and loved. I of mean, course, we all, yeah, yeah. I mean, I watch yeah. I watch it after after burn notice. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, I that said, the chandelier thing, Nate, is something that struck me watching this movie that I didn't quite pay attention to the last time I watched it uh, many years ago, but it, it definitely hit me as a oh, that's, you know, what an iconic, wonderful thing. Like if there were a, if there were a criterion edition of family plot, it would, the cover would probably be the chandelier, right? Like, yeah. or so, like, or, it's, or it's, like, or like a contrasty image of Karen Black. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's there. It, like it, fragmented by the chandelier. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Somebody call criterion, <laughs> make it happen. Um, <laughs> can I ask, can I ask as we kind of wrap up here? What's everybody's favorite Hitchcock? I, I know Connors, but you can say it for for the whole world. But yeah, what's I mean, your my technically it's Rear Window because Rear Window is like my favorite movie ever made. But outside of that, I would say um, I really love I really love Notorious. That's one that I I visit quite frequently. I think particularly because. The Cary Grant, everybody's so great in it. Like everyone's seemingly kind of playing against type. You get to see Cary Grant kind of play an asshole, which is sort of nice. Um, it, uh, yeah, Notorious is quite, quite wonderful. What about you, Nate? 
So this is a tough question because it's it's almost like you know what's your favorite Beatles album? You know, <laughs> yeah, right, right. With Hitchcock, yeah. you can kind of go any way, and I'm you know again kicking myself for ignoring his post Birds output. Um, probably the one that I've seen the most, and that I tell people like, oh, this is a good one to start with, is North by Northwest because people yeah. people think of him mainly as like the birds and psycho and so it's like isn't he like a horror guy and i'm like you you, you're you're in for a a surprise because of these thrillers and these spy things and all these different things that he would do um so that's up there if you have not seen a hitchcock or you don't know anything about one and you don't know like what psycho is about that one the first time i watched that i the ending was not spoiled for me and i leapt off of the couch and like screamed at the ending. I was by myself. Yeah, and I under, was just. I mean, it, I, it, he's he's one of those directors, man. That like yeah. I think under the right conditions, like Rear Window. When I so Rear Window was the first movie of his I had ever seen, and it was introduced to me by a family friend who was like, "You got to watch this movie." I like knew Psycho as a movie, right? Like I sure. knew it existed or whatever, but I didn't. I I didn't really pay attention to like who Alfred Hitchcock was as a director. And I watched Rear Window and it it I'll just say this, that movie or any one of these movies that we're talking about under the right circumstances, his movies will change your life. Like they just like I. Yeah. Again, if you're able to watch them, like Nate just said, like if you're able to watch Psycho without seemingly knowing what happens or what it's about or whatever, uh, it'll hit you in all the right ways. And I think a lot of his so many of his movies are like that. Right. The last one, the one that I like to, you know, notorious, I feel like, yes, that that one you, you cannot go wrong with. That one is beautiful. But the one that has crept up on me and has become a favorite as of late is Shadow of a Doubt. Joseph yeah, Cotton, yeah which is his I, I think by all accounts his favorite movie of his i've heard that yeah, yeah. and just it's yeah that's it's, a good one in a weird way i was looking at Teresa wright's filmography because i did a couple of her films and, and you know going through these classic hollywood movies that i wanted to share about i found myself doing like five Teresa wright movies in a row and i was just stunned by like she has one of the greatest beginnings of a career ever like mm. the little foxes mrs miniver pride of the yankees shadow of a doubt like in a row Casanova yeah. Brown with Gary Cooper. It's just like she made no misstep. And then, then her career kind of goes in a, a different direction, but it's just, it's, it's amazing. But that and one's great. Joseph Cotton is also, I think for my money, like you, we talk about older actors, right? You see people talk about different people on film Twitter or what have you. And I feel like Joseph Cotton is just one of those dudes who like never gets enough respect no. as like right. one of the greatest actors to ever live like yeah. yeah i mean shadow of a doubt the thin or the third man and citizen kane alone you know mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable the magnificent ambersons is yeah, like yeah. what an incredible performance like i was gonna say yeah, yeah North Dan, northwest is yeah. my favorite you know just of his movies you know which you know, people say it's really the first James Bond movie, which I always love to think about because it kind of is like it's like it predates Bond and it's like so perfectly placed if you think about it in the context. But it's like better than that also, obviously. And um, and then, yeah, Topaz. I mean, that's just the one nobody's seen it. And it's amazing. And it's yeah, like see it. European. Watch it. It's weird. It's like it's labyrinthian. It's like one of the one of his most beautiful movies. I think I like it even more because there are no movie stars. So you kind of don't get swept up in any one. You like kind of mm-hmm. learn about these people, you know, I don't know. That's, that's just one. And I always I would go also, back to, so. I would say, do yourself the favor listener. If you have not seen Topaz and you are going to watch it, um, watch it, enjoy it. 
Dan's correct. It is very good. Um, but I will say the alternate ending that is not used in the movie is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, they're like, both good. I like I like the movie, the regular one too. But yeah, they're both. But cool. I but I I remember watching because it's you know not unlike a lot of his movies. And I again I think this is with his movies they're sort of this holdover. I think from the silent era, but it's also I think relatively common in you know old the old Hollywood system. They just kind of end right like it things wrap up and then it's literally like one last moment to the camera maybe and uh and then, then that's it right so it's uh topaz definitely kind of has that in spades because it seemingly had a little bit of trouble with its ending so if you do watch topaz which we would encourage uh mm. seek out the alternate ending it's kind of cool have you both seen like his all of his films no, I, not his, he, I haven't seen all of his silent movies. Yeah, the, hmm. that's the big gap for me. Once I've seen basically, I mean, without looking at his filmography right now, I've seen, I think, basically everything once you get up to the like 39 steps yeah like the Mm -hmm. late 30s into the 40s yeah yeah i'm i'm basically the same the only one of all of those i i outwardly do not like is the wrong man with with uh with uh what's interesting about henry fonda yeah Yeah, that's a tough one to get through what's interesting about just a little boring it's a little Mm -hmm. rote it's a little the the vera miles stuff in the wrong man is where it kind of loses me um but the, and it's like Hitchcock felt compelled to make the movie because it was a true story. Like that's a for another time. But it just yeah. it just it, it just doesn't gel for me that one. Mm. Yeah. But um. So as we finish up this first this inaugural episode of 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 the B side last of us i don't know whatever what we're we gonna call it <laughs> i'll put a name on it we'll see um <laughs> finale yeah yeah tell nate where can people find you in the world tell us uh so yeah you can find my i i did uh the classic hollywood movie you should know i started it back in 2018 took a hiatus but then i brought it back in march once everything in sort of the entertainment world kind of shut down and I had all this time. So I've been doing a weekly five minute, you know, review slash recommendation on YouTube. You can look up my name, Nate Washburn, the little, um, thumbnail image is a, you see, you see the Hollywood sign from the back, like it's the behind the Hollywood sign. Um, and yeah, I've been, I think I'm up to like 92 films on that. Last week I just did oceans 11 for new year's. Oh, right. And, I saw uh, that. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. Um and it's yeah, it's been that, fun. That movie, that original. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> it's oh man. You gotta love Sinatra. Oh, yeah, you, have to, you have to really you have to really love the rat pack to love I that. say oh, that in you the, I say that right in the beginning if, of it. I'm like, if you don't you like have to Sinatra, worship don't, the yeah. You have to be like you have to be like you have to be like Peter Lawford's okay. You should to like you should watch all the episodes of classic Hollywood movie you should know. Not to undercut oh Nate God. here, but I will uh. say if you are someone who watched, say, the Clooney remake and you were like, I oh, really, yeah. I really oh, like yeah. this, let me watch the original. No. Don't. That happened to me. Don't that happened to me. It, it was that on, happened to me. I think that I think anyone all age all Dan who has seen yeah. that movie, that's how that happened. Well, I saw I, the Sinatra I, one first. Did, so did, did, was, you see, I'm an Italian yeah. American. I love Frank uh, more as much as any great. Uh, Italian 
And I was like, oh, it was on TCM years ago. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I like the Clooney one. And I'm like, oh, no, this is something different. You know? <laughs> um, and then um, I'll say that, of course, you can find us here at the B-side for the film stage. Um, you can find me on the film stage writing reviews and doing interviews as as uh, needed and wanted. Um, I'm at DJ Mecca on Twitter. And Connor, as always, just to close us out. Close yeah, you can find nice. so you can find this podcast on Facebook and Twitter at TFSB side. You can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Looking, um, and yeah, that's this is our first uh, this is our first uh, pass at, at kind of an episode like this. I think I think we'll be doing more of them, kind of sca- yeah. scattered throughout. Um, Nate Nate was kind enough to offer this up, so I think we'll we'll probably be bringing him back for for more and um, we we'll talk about hey. the dead. Happy yeah, to do so it. many, Thank so you. many. And actually, Thank listener, you. if you if you like what you've heard on this particular episode, do let us know um, uh, because it'll definitely encourage us to do more like this. And uh, and let us know if there are any filmmakers who have made their final movies that uh that you'd like us to to try and tackle um we'll we'll take all suggestions um generally if you like what you hear you can rate review subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts uh we very much appreciate that and now that i've wrapped up the housekeeping uh you can't you can't see it but i'm just winking i'm just winking directly at the camera nice nice yeah Uh, give a watch to family plot it's worth it it's very much worth it Agreed. Thank you for listening, and we will uh, we'll be back soon.